Thank you. I'm used to this one anyway. I'm going to turn this off, though, so we don't get something crazy happen. Okay. That's more comfortable anyway. Um, so Jonathan will be back next week, but you guys are unfortunately stuck with me this week. Um, there we go. Got to get it out of my hair. Kyle doesn't have this problem. Uh, so anyway, they've been walking us through Exodus. We have talked about a lot of the big, iconic uh, Exodus stories, the big um, movie scene parts of Exodus, right? We have talked about uh, God's people's oppression in the land of Egypt. We have talked about their delivery through plagues and signs and wonders that sort of culminate in the Passover moment where they leave Egypt and then they walk across the sea on dry ground. And we've talked about all the while God uh, decreating all that is bad and broken in this oppressive system and recreating his people the way he always intended them to be. Where we left off last week, Kyle um, talked about the celebration and the singing uh, right after the parting of the Red Sea, this, this joyous, happy moment. And now we're kind of entering the, the heavy days of wilderness. Um, it's like the dust has sort of settled from all of that excitement and all of that happiness. Uh, they're only, though, about a month out from that stuff. It hasn't really been that long. And I was thinking about it this week and as we've been reading through I picture all of these things like I do, like I see these stories as if they are from the movie The Prince of Egypt because I was like eight when it came out and I had a little brother and we were an evangelical household and that's what we watched, right? We watched The Prince of Egypt over and over and over again. We had to actually have movies. We couldn't download them. And so this was like one of the ones that sort of defined like our childhoods. And in my mind when I read these stories, I still see Moses like he is there. Like in the beginning of the movie, he's really young. And then I have this image of Moses, like in, from my children's Bible, where he all of a sudden has a huge beard for like, no, like, I don't know. I don't know what Moses' facial hair situation is, but like, there's no middle age for Moses, right? Because I have these, all these caricatures of these stories in my head. I have all of these ways of imagining and remembering and kind of thinking I know what these stories are about because I've grown up with them, right? And because I think I know what these stories are about, and because I have this sort of backwards lens, I really think the people of Israel are quite silly, right? Like, how can they be grumbling already? They have been delivered from slavery. They have walked across the ocean. They have seen God do amazing things. And it's a month later, and they're upset, right? Because we think of faith as like this linear, linear trajectory upwards. We think that like as we see God move, our faith grows in proportion, and for some of the saints of God, I think this is true. Some people, they see God do amazing things. They walk through life with him, and their, their commitment, their bravery grows and grows and grows. I am not one of those people, though. Like, to me, my faith is not linear. It's more, it has more of, like, an ebb and a flow. Like, it's very cyclical, and it's very dependent on my circumstances. I can trust God to deliver a loved one from death on one week, but, like, the next week, if my air conditioner breaks... Like, I am forsaken. Like, it is over. And, and I'm not kidding about that. Like, you can ask my husband. Like, I am forsaken if the air conditioner breaks. Because I, I just have this ebb and this flow to my faith. And it's very dependent on what's happening right in front of my face. For most of my career, I've been a bedside nurse. I um, worked in open-heart intensive care and had the privilege and the honor of walking with a lot of people through scary moments and through um, 
really difficult surgeries. And typically what happens with these surgeries is a patient will come into the, the emergency room with a lot of chest pain, right? Like a lot of discomfort. They feel like they can't breathe. They are very concerned they're going to die. And the cardiologist immediately gets to doing these tests, these workups. And in some rare cases, we have to say, look, things are pretty bad and your heart has a lot of blockages. We can't quite do the non-invasive tricks we have to getting those vessels open again, so we need to do something a little more serious. We need to do surgery. And at that moment, the only option is to trust the surgeon, right? In that moment, everybody's like, sure, let's do it. We get everything ready. The next few days, we will schedule and have your open heart surgery. And that day is a really tense day. It's like everybody's on pins and needles. And then by afternoon, like, usually a surgeon gets to come out and he says, guess what? Like, we fixed it. Like, you've basically got a brand new heart. Like, and there is relief. There is hugging. People are, like, posting on their social media, this is the best surgeon I've ever seen. Like, this is amazing. Everybody is relieved. And then we kind of, like, let you rest and get stable. For the whole rest of the day, you kind of stay in bed and recover. And about 5 a.m., you're overly caffeinated, overly extroverted nurse, just me, uh, comes in and is like, it's time to get out of bed. And these people who, who are grown, independent adults are like, that's fine. I'll get out of bed. Like, in the first moment they sit up, there's this pain and this shock because they realize their bodies are different, right? They realize that they have all these tubes and IVs and they're uncomfortable. They have pain from surgery, incisions, and they can't just get out of bed like they could the day before. And overall, they're a lot more well. They're a lot more healed and whole, but they feel terrible, right? They may have escaped from death to life, but they're, they've lost their independence. They can't move around. They can't they start being very concerned, usually as early as 5 a.m. the next day, about their livelihoods. How will I go back to work? How will I live like this? And it's usually temporary, but it's shocking. And then... The breakfast trays roll in, and it's like an egg-like substance, and there's no salt. And it's another shock. I can't, I can't provide for myself. I can't feed myself the way I'm used to. A nurse comes in with this big cup of pills, and you realize everything is going to be different, and they start grumbling because this wasn't exactly what they expected. And this is the situation that God's people are in. They've, they've been delivered from death to life, but really, really uncomfortable. They've lost all of their self-reliance. They've lost their old way of comforting and caring for themselves. This is not the position they expected to be in as they left in a hurry and in a panic, right? Um, and because their circumstances don't line up with what they think God should be doing, they begin to kind of count him out of the equation. They say, we got to go to Moses and Aaron and ask them about this, right? They don't even turn to, Moses, to God first, which is something they'll continue to get in trouble for all through the wilderness, is their unwillingness to turn um, to God, right? They want to blame and look for solutions everywhere else. And Moses and Aaron don't let them do it. They're not taking the fall for that one. They're like, you got to go to God, right? And the crazy thing is, is not just that God rains bread and quail, even though I love raining bread, like I'm very pro that movement, but he's not just providing them food, right? 
He's providing them a connection, a relationship to him. The, the scriptures emphasize this morning and this nighttime cycle, this awareness of God that comes in and out with their doubt. It's, it's the morning and it's the evening, and then there's rest on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. He's creating in them not just, they want their pots of meat, their independence, their, their little bits of comfort that they had in Egypt, and what he is offering them is a reshaping awareness of his presence, right? And we see this a lot with, like, I have a lot of kids. Um, not like a lot, but like I have enough. And they, uh, <laughs> and, and like that's one of them. She's eating right now. And when we get these babies, we know that they, they need food like every two hours in the beginning, right? But they don't just need the food. We can't just chunk a granola bar at them. Like, they need to be held. They need warmth. They need comfort. They need a physical connection to their caregivers that builds bridges in their brain. It teaches them about safety. It teaches them how to ask for help, who to respond to, who to trust. Like, there's this connection that we have to give our children, and it's the same sort of connection God is giving his people. Because they're adults, but they have experienced a whole lot of trauma, right? They have had a really icky, hard relationship with a king up until this point. Pharaoh has not been good to them. They have had enough food, but they have not had a right relationship with their king. He's been abusive. He hasn't cared for them. And God is using this man a moment to reteach them and retrain them about what a good king and a good provider looks like, right? Like he is using this moment over and over and over again to remind them that the Lord is near to them and that he is good. We're told that this bread is actually sweet, like it's, it's this foretaste of the kingdom to come. And it's this beautiful thing that God invites them in the middle of the wilderness to rest. He invites them in the wilderness to rest despite their circumstances and despite the fact that all they've ever known is forced labor, like all they've ever known is this oppressive system in which they provide for their king, and now God is flipping the script on them, and he is providing for them, right? Like, he is establishing them as a totally different kind of people with a totally different relationship to their ruler. And the hard thing is, is that they don't leave wilderness Im immediately. There's a long long path ahead of them of this manna and quail pattern but it becomes such a part of who they are that they'll take the manna and they'll put it in the Ark of the Covenant because they want to always remember this corrected relationship with the God who provides and cares for them, right? And all of this is a part of the Jewish people and the Jewish culture as, um, as they enter into this promised land. They kind of carry this idea of what God's kingdom is supposed to be. It's like the garden, right? God provides. We work alongside God. We gather. But God is the author. He is the provider. He is the one caring for us and building something beautiful. And it's something that the people identify with and carry with them even up until the point where they see Jesus. Um, we pick up with Jesus a little bit down the road, and he goes through in so many ways. Jesus, as we know, is mirroring the Exodus story. In so many ways, he's fulfilling the Exodus story. And 
we see that Jesus goes through his own season of wilderness when he starts his ministry, right? Uh, he passes his wilderness test, though the Israelites do not. And he begins his ministry and he feeds the people. The scriptures say that he feeds the 5,000. And it's basically like he has put a free pizza sign up at a college campus, right? Like this is essentially where we, we hit John 6 is that people are following him around because they've heard that he fed 5,000 people. Um, and so Jesus is a little bit frustrated with everybody. Uh, and there's this really uncomfortable moment towards the beginning of his ministry. And I'm going to read a little bit uh, in John 6. So I'm going to read John 6, 25. Um, he says, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, why, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell the, you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate of the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe the one he has sent. It's the same kind of work that God is establishing for his people in the wilderness, right? The work is to trust. The work is to believe in the one that God has sent. And so they ask him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So basically, recap, that's uh, what we do in children's ministry, recap. Um, they're, they're asking Jesus for what he can give them, what they can see and feel, and taste, and touch, they're not all that different than the people in the Old Testament, right? They, all that they can wrap their heads around is what they can see with their five senses. For the Israelites, they saw death on one side with Pharaoh, and then they saw death on their own failed survival, right? And for these people, Jesus says that they're coming because he's filling their bellies. Cal and I were having a conversation about this this week, and he brought up the fact that people will still say things like, if I had just seen Jesus walk on water, right? If I had just seen Jesus feed the 5,000, then I believe. Our faith is so conditional to what we see in front of us, but our vision is really limited, right? And Jesus tells them, you can't chase this food that spoils just like the manna in heaven, we know that no matter how sweet the bread, no matter how much you gather, it doesn't last. Like all of these other things that you want, they don't last, right? 
And so they say, well, then what should we work for? And Jesus, Jesus tells them the work is just to believe, right? The work is to believe that he is that bread. And then I don't know what it says in the original language, but in my NIV, the same word is used. Then they grumble, right? Then they start complaining. They start getting upset with Jesus. They have been looking kind of for their proverbial pots of meat that the Israelites are crying out for. And he says, I am the bread. And they are not very comfortable with that. They want Jesus to be building an empire like Pharaoh or Rome, a thing that can give them something, right? They want the spoils of the kingdom. And Jesus said, I am the spoils of the kingdom. And then he does this really terrible PR move where he tells everybody to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It's a famous story. And Jesus says, unless you do this, you can't enter the kingdom. And everybody sort of walks away in this moment. It's a very tense moment in the story because nobody came here for a broken and a bloodied king. They came here to see what God could do for them. And what he has done, he's saying, is he will die for them. Like, he will be their provision. He won't provide them something else. He will be their provision. And even the disciples are like, that's, that's pretty hard to take, Jesus. Like, we got to give the people something. They don't understand what you're saying. This is a lot. And they're a little downhearted. And I think this part of this passage has become one of the, the stories in the Bible I relate to the most. Because at this moment, Jesus says, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, where would I go? You are the Holy One. Like, we know this. Peter's not happy about it. Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is saying necessarily, but he knows that he has seen enough to know that Jesus is their provision. And I think like the Israelites, like Peter, we live so much of our life in this in-between space, right? We find ourselves aware that Jesus is our provision, but we haven't seen his kingdom fully realized yet. We haven't seen um, his return and glory we know enough to know that the old way of life is broken and busted, and we want nothing to do with it. We know we can't turn back. We have that sort of desperate tone. Where will we go? But we so often are afraid that we're going to die out here in the wilderness. I am like a what-if person. Uh, what if X? What if, what if, what if? And I live a lot of my life in this in-between space in what if. Um, if we decide to go on a family vacation, my husband can pull up the Airbnb website, and by the time he has, I've come up with like 35 what ifs. Like, what if we get COVID? What if the kids are okay? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And this is my pattern. And I don't take it to the Lord a lot. I'm mo more like the Israelites. I go to anyone around me who can solve these problems or I think can solve these problems. And this week I found myself what ifing a lot. I am a person who struggles with anxiety. I'm a person who um, is always pretty nervous. And I, I just walked around my house saying, what if, what if, what if, about a situation we were experiencing. And I found myself beginning to pray the Lord's Prayer. 
It's the prayer that Jesus taught us. We know it so well. Give us today our daily bread. And I had this realization that our daily bread is not our 10-year plan. It's not give us today the full kingdom realized. It's not give us today the full picture of what you want to do in us and in our broken world. We can still live in this wilderness and be invited into Sabbath with our God and our maker. We can still have a full provision today because Jesus says that he is the bread that does not spoil. He is not like the manna that the Israelites received. He is completely enough for today. And he taught us to pray that way. He taught us over and over and over again to pray that he would give us our daily bread. And it just sort of hit me in this moment of fear and anxiety that God sees all of that stuff and that I can still put it down and rest today. It sort of hit me that God is not just giving me enough to survive each day. Like he says, his provision is not, is not just enough to stave off our hunger, right? The daily um, communion that we have with Christ our King is so much more than that. It's, it's the ability to live fully in him each day, even in these in-between and messy spaces, even with our doubts and our confusions, even though we don't really have a vision of what this coming kingdom will look like. We have pictures of it. We have inklings of it. We see moments where it breaks through in our lives. But for the most part, we still live in a really lost and broken world, right? We still have encountered a whole lot of trauma and chaos. We've been delivered from a lot of things, and we still have a lot of things to be delivered from. And wherever we're at with that, of course, we are praying and continuing for God's kingdom to come. But there comes this moment in the, the cycle that God sets up for his people where we have to stop and rest in Sabbath, right? There comes this moment where we have to stop and realize that what God has given us is enough. That our broken and our bloody king is enough to sustain us. Even when our vision is cloudy, even when we can't see the way forward, Jesus promises that he is able, that he can rescue us. He also leaves me with a pretty distinct impression that it won't look the way that I believe it will. Um, but I'm okay with that. Like, that's the thing, and that's the trouble, is we can live our whole lives either under Pharaoh just surviving, just accepting what little comforts and self-soothing we can offer, we can be offered there, or we can live our lives trying to sustain ourselves in the desert and trying to work and toil and survive and stave off our hunger, or we can take this third way, which is just to accept that God is enough. And it feels trite to say that sometimes, but the reality is, is that we are talking about a God so intimate, so loving, so kind he wants to be with us in the morning and in the night like in the garden he wants to walk with us in the cool of the day we're talking about a God who to fix our brokenness will break himself apart for us 
we know he will give himself fully to us because he knows it is exactly what we need. And every day we have the choice to believe what's right in front of us and our limited vision or to believe the God who broke himself open for us, to believe that God will tell us things sometimes that we don't understand, right? To believe that our life will look messy and complicated, and we will live in the wilderness as his people. Jesus walked through the wilderness. Jesus walked through complications. Jesus walked through death, and I don't think he expects his people to be very different than him. But we can trust that this is the God who wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with us so much that this reminder of his connection to us is in the Ark of the Covenant. It's this very, I I don't know, it's a very soothing thing to me to realize that our God will go anywhere with us and for us. And in our house, we have this this sort of tradition, and it doesn't always work because some days are messy and wild and crazy, but like... When we have family dinners together, we ask everyone who can talk um, what their high and what their low was for the day, right? Uh, we, we try to process things as a family. We recognize that we're all in different places all day long. Uh, we're all experiencing these different things. And we, we bring the kids together and we ask them these questions and we talk about them themselves. We model it because we want to be shaped by this continual coming around the table. We want our presence in our kids' lives to help them filter and see and understand things in a different kind of way. The family table is very important to us. And it's the same kind of thing God is doing in this manna moment is he's bringing his people in and helping them filter and see what is true and what is real. It's the same kind of thing we regularly do in our small groups at Mosaic and in our friendships here. It's the same kind of thing we do at the communion table. We recognize that we can't help but see the desperation and feel the hunger within ourselves. But there's a place to bring that, and there's a place to rest in what God is doing. I'm just overwhelmed by his goodness and his kindness to his people, that he refuses to allow them to believe that he is like Pharaoh, and he refuses to allow them to become like Pharaoh themselves, He is constantly and continually our provider. So I think think that that's the invitation in this part of the story. They don't leave the wilderness, but they learn a little more about who God is and who he intends them to be. And it's the same with the disciples that stick around in this story, the ones that can hear this hard and this heavy truth. That whatever they came for, whatever they're hoping for, Jesus might not give them, but he will give us himself. And wherever we're at, and whatever our fears and our anxieties and our doubts are, Jesus calls us to rest in the fact that he is enough. To come around the table and declare as his people that he is enough. He created these these cycles for us too, just like the people in the wilderness. These morning and night and weekly cycles, and one of those cycles is communion. Band can go ahead and come on up. We do communion here every week. Um, we're big fans because we want to come and we want to bring 
everything we have to this table. The only work that God has given his people is to believe the one he has sent. And that is not an easy thing to do, but it helps if we can do that shaped around this table. It helps if we can do that shaped together. And so that's what I want to invite you guys into. What we do here is we take a piece of the bread and a cup, and we kind of take it back to our seats. Uh, we have the gluten-free options over here. I think we're post-having the COVID options. Um, but we just want to use this time to reflect. What is it that you are afraid to bring to God's table? What is it that you do not want to talk to God about? What is it that needs to be shaped and formed by the, rea- the reality that Christ has died and Christ has risen? Yeah, we just invite you guys into that. I'm going to pray, and then we'll move forward. Lord, we just ask you for an awareness of your nearness. God, we ask you to teach us that in this day you are not the food that spoils. To teach us um, not to trust our provisions, but to trust you as provider, to know that you alone are good. Help us, Lord, to see your grace and your goodness, even in the wilderness seasons. Help us, God, to have the courage and the bravery it takes to trust you, to sit with you in Sabbath, not to spend and waste our lives chasing provision, storing things up for ourselves. Help us to trust that you want to meet with us in the cool of the morning and in the evening. Teach us, Lord, that we have never been self-sufficient, and that's okay. We have never been able to take care of ourselves or provide for ourselves, and yet you are always doing a better job of that than we can ever imagine. You are the one who came to be with us, to provide what we could not, to pass the tests that we could not, to deliver us from death itself, and you are faithful to do that, God. Help us trust your death and your resurrection, not just in the life of the world to come, but in this world, God. In this day, in this moment, in this hour, show us what it means to embrace the broken and the bloodied Savior. To not spend our lives chasing anything else but Christ and his resurrection. God, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you that you desire to be with us. We ask you in this moment, God, to dwell richly with your people as you have promised you always intended. In your name we pray. Amen.